0: But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you.
1: Well, good morning and happy Easter. Thank you so much for being here with us this morning. And, um, and if you are here, it means you made it through the last wave of COVID. So well done. You're either post-COVID or you're one of those rare immortals who the rest of us just pay homage to because you're inexplicably somehow unharmed through it all. Um, but really good to be here and for the weather to be great. It should be a cracking day together and a great, a great time to dive into the story of Easter and the conclusion in the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. And whether you are here and you are just checking out Christianity for the first time, or whether you are a follower of Jesus yourself, or whether you have been dragged along by a relative, and you are here with a certain amount of skepticism about the claims, it's great you could be here today, because the resurrection and the message of the resurrection is something that we are deeply longing for, whether you consider yourself spiritual, religious or not. Because the resurrection even in a modern secular culture, is something that we are aching for. We are aching for our bodies to be renewed. One prominent gerontologist has said or claimed, you may have heard this already, that the first person to live to 150 years old has probably already been born. They might even be in this room, one of you ones who didn't get COVID somehow, right? That it could be one of you. But even with that, we know that we are living longer and longer. And with medical advancement, we're getting better and better at prolonging life. But there's another strange phenomenon at work in our culture at the same time. While we are living longer, that doesn't seem to be enough for us. We do want to live longer, but we, w- we want to live longer younger. That is, if there's a way to do it, we would like to be 22 forever, I'm at an age now where internet ads have started targeting me for hair loss and things like that. Now I can I can quite happily say that I feel pretty well covered. Thank you, Mum and Dad, or Gran- is it Granddad? Is that the There's not much science behind it, is there? But either way, I'm getting targeted for ads like that. And I did start to wonder, when did that become a thing? When did that become something that men became particularly self-conscious about? I don't know if anyone would have a particular date, but I imagine it's emerged somewhere in the last century that previously going grey or even losing your hair as a sign of age was culturally treated as a sign of respect, maturity, wisdom, but now it's treated with fear. And it's not just men, of course. Men and women in Australia have over 200,000 medical procedures worth over $350 million annually. To do for anti-aging procedures, and that's aside from all of the the other care and products that are out there. We want to live forever, but we want to live young forever. We want to somehow reverse the aging process, or at least freeze it for a time, that we are desperate and we are obsessed with keeping our youth. Why? I think it's because as we age, it's a reminder that death is at work in our bodies. And it's something that we long to be freed from, that even as advanced as we are as a culture, it's something that we still can't overcome and we long to do it. And so, like trying to preserve a sandcastle kind of near the tide, as the tide comes in and it washes away, we make more and more anxious efforts to try and preserve our life, but it slips away. It's something that we don't have the power to do. We want our bodies to be rid of the death at work in them, but if we're honest about it, we can't do it. And this is the resurrection power that Jesus claims to have. The power to renew our bodies and our life forever. That is the extraordinary claim of Easter. And it's either that or nothing. And so I'm going to pray that as we dive into this resurrection story, that we'll see in it Jesus' promise for not just life eternal, but renewed life and renewed bodies in a new creation forever. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for Easter. We praise you even for this long weekend, for the chance to stop and reflect on the gravity and truth and wonder of Easter, and of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection. We just pray that this morning we might see the power of the life at work in Jesus, and the power of the life at work in all who call Jesus as Lord. And Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, on Easter Friday, we remembered the death of Jesus Jesus the forgiveness that he offers, the complete washing away and renewal that he offers and has won by dying on the cross in our place. But on Easter Sunday, we look at the resurrection story. And we start here in Matthew 28, as Veronica read out before. Let's pick up from sentence one. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with great fear and joy, and ran to tell his disciples and behold Jesus met them and said greetings and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him so Jesus has risen from the dead and the first witnesses here were women it's Mary Magdalene and then the other Mary poor the other Mary she had no other defining details she's just called the other Mary there was two of them one of them has to be the other one but it's significant in this story for a couple of reasons the first reason is significant was that at that time and in that culture, a woman's testimony was less valid than a man's, particularly in legal proceedings. In fact, her testimony was only valid if it was backed up or corroborated by a man's. And so the fact that these are the first witnesses is testimony to the fact that the disciples who wrote this down, Matthew in particular, was not making the story up because if you made the story up and you were trying to make it more believable in that particular time, you wouldn't have included that detail. But it's here because they're recording what happened, not making up a story in the hope that people will believe it. But it's secondly significant, because God chose these women to be the first witnesses to the greatest event in history. And it's a mark of the character of God. But here they witness the resurrection, and then after this, the disciples, the rest of the disciples, are witness to the resurrection. But what's interesting is, it's not all symmetrical. Then in fact, as they witness it, it happens in kind of waves. And so to pick that up, we're going to head across to the Gospel of John and particularly to the story of Thomas and how it is that he came to believe in the risen Lord Jesus. In John 20, 24 and 25, we read this. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So Jesus has appeared to the other disciples and not to him. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas is known by two things. One, he's known as the twin here. And the reason he's known as the twin is is kind of up for debate. Some imagine it's just because he was a twin, so that was the way of identifying this Thomas. However, his name and the name given him may suggest, in fact, that this was kind of a pseudonym. Some have suggested that his name was actually Judas. And because there was two Judases, he was kind of Judas the twin like the other one. Look, if, if, if I shared the name with the guy who betrayed the Son of God, I'd probably want to rebrand as well. And so maybe that's what he's gone for here. But either way, that's one of the ways he's known throughout the Gospels. It's Thomas the twin. But the thing he's known for in church history is as doubting Thomas. In fact, even if he didn't grow up with any kind of church background, You may have heard the phrase, "Oh, he's a bit of a doubting Thomas," or "She's a bit of a doubting Thomas," and it comes back to this story. But interestingly, interestingly, Thomas is not portrayed as doubting Thomas in the gospel. That's not how he's depicted in this narrative. There's a famous painting by Caravaggio, and his depiction of Thomas was as doubting Thomas. And he's got here. I'm no art critic, and you can you know the emphasis actually helps. But you notice there that Jesus is kind of presented in kind of bright light and Thomas is shrouded in darkness. And it's meant to signify the fact that Thomas himself was clouded and shrouded by doubt and disbelief. And so he's been remembered that way. But is it actually fair? Well, no, it's not. Thomas here is only only demanding the same evidence that everybody else has got. They're in Jerusalem, they've met the risen Lord Jesus, so they say, we believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, we've met him. And he says, I just want to see that too. He's just demanding the exact same evidence that everyone else has got. Because the truth is, people back then, as now, didn't believe that people rose from the dead. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, wrote that sometimes we can be guilty of what he calls chronological snobbery. And that's the belief that we, our cultural moment, is kind of the the peak intellectual moment of human history, that all before us were somewhat gullible, and that we are the ones who have finally come into a a sense of reason and truth. He summarizes it this way, chronological snobbery is the belief that intellectually, humanity languished for countless generations in the most childish errors on all sorts of crucial subjects until it was redeemed by some simple scientific dictum of the last century. One example of this was calling a period of time the medieval ages which literally means backwards the belief that they were behind and there can be this belief that we're on this trajectory towards truth and light and intellectual superiority and that all generations before weren't and with that we can sometimes believe that of course the resurrection was believed in the first century because they just believed everything back then they're not like us but the truth is every culture has its intellectual blind spots and every culture can be skeptical of things, and the first century people shared a skepticism about the resurrection. That's why Thomas says, I just I want to see him. If Jesus really rose from the dead, I want to bear witness to it too so that I can believe it. And so 8 days later we pick up the story with Thomas again. In John 20:26 20, to 29, we read 8 days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So eight days later, the disciples are inside and the doors are locked. And that's significant for two reasons. It's significant because they're in fear for their lives. Their leader has been publicly executed and they're waiting for when their turn will be. So they've locked the doors. They're basically in hiding. But it's significant also because the author here, John, just says the doors were locked and then Jesus was among them. That's it. He just jogs on. So just sit with that for a bit. But Jesus is, is there and present among them and he seems to single out Thomas particularly. And he goes up to Thomas and he says to him, See my wounds, place your hands on them, and you'll see that I am very much Jesus who who is risen from the dead. He says to him, Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas, having received the same evidence now as everyone else, beholds him and says, My Lord and my God. He worships him. He gets it. This isn't just a man. This is fully God and fully man who is risen from the dead, who has conquered death, the final enemy. And he worships Jesus. And then Jesus makes this funny little side note. I don't know if you noticed it there in the story. He says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So even there, Jesus seems to have in mind, as this story is retold, that there will be those who have not seen Jesus risen from the dead physically who will believe that he rose from the dead. Blessed are those who have not seen, he says, The expectation is that people throughout the centuries will believe in him. And that the reason we're gathering here on a Sunday morning on the other side of the world is because that gospel message has been passed on from generation to generation and people have believed in Jesus and had their life transformed by him. It's interesting because this week I came across a work, an updated version of of Caravaggio's painting. And it was was, uh, painted in 2010 by John Granville Gregory and I can find almost no info on him, so he must at least be a boomer, so there's no info from him on the internet. And the rendering is called, Still Doubting. Still Doubting. And this is the picture. Now, I couldn't find any comment from the artist on this, on on what its actual meaning is. But we're postmodern, and my truth is as important as the artist's truth anyway, so I can just have a hot take, and maybe mine is even more significant than his interpretation of his own work. But in seriousness, if I'm I'm understanding the intent of it correctly, I think the intent of his painting, in updating it and giving it a modern context clearly, is to say that those who share the seeking doubt of Thomas are able to meet Jesus and find the same answers and the same faith as he did. That those who share the same seeking doubt of Thomas will, in Jesus, find the same answers and the same faith that he did. That it is possible to have that doubt, to inquire of it, and to have it answered in Christ enough that you would believe that he is the risen Lord Jesus. And if that is you, and you're someone who would describe yourself as sceptical of this claim, let me just offer up two things briefly. Firstly, is to say that it's pretty understandable The claim of scriptures is that this is a miracle, that this doesn't happen every day, that this is significant, and that it's central to the gospel. So it's not like the Bible just glosses over it like this is something that should just happen day in and day out. It is extraordinary, and it is a one-off. But there is reason why, as a modern scientific person, you could believe that there is evidence for the resurrection. See, in the culture of the day, people were not expecting a resurrection or even necessarily an afterlife. The Jewish people themselves had some debate. There were certainly those who believed that there was no, life, uh, no a life after death and some who were somewhat ambivalent about it. But in the first century, in a largely Greek-influenced culture, the general sense about life, death, afterlife, all of that was pretty, is reasonably familiar to our modern day. It was pretty apathetic. Just to give you one kind of introduction to it, there was an inscription on a first-century grave that reads, look, my Latin pronunciation isn't amazing, so forgive me that if you are an expert. Non fui, fui, non sum, non curo. That is, I wasn't, I was, I am not, I don't care. That's the end of it. We were at the Easter show yesterday, that would have made a great slogan shirt. It would have been right right in the theme of things as you walk in. But that was a vision of of the attitude towards life and afterlife and all of that in the first century that was reasonably accurate as a summary of how people felt about things. So they weren't waiting or anticipating for someone just to validate their deepest desires and so when the, the myth about Jesus arose, everyone was kind of ready to believe it. No, actually the belief in Christianity and the explosion of Christianity was a great reversal of the present worldview. And so the question has to be, what would have led people to reverse their beliefs about the afterlife because of Christianity? Is there anything that could have done it that was not the actual resurrection of Jesus? That is one question in the mind of the modern thinker. But the second one is this, and maybe more existentially. Doesn't it answer the innate longing we have for our bodies to overcome death? as much as we have in our modern and as much safety and as much health as we enjoy in our modern culture, we still have a deep longing for our bodies to overcome death. Even while I was preparing for this this weekend, I was sitting at a cafe and there was a group of people in their 20s kind of talking about life and everything that was going on. But for a full hour, for a full hour, the conversation was entirely centered on health. And these were young people in the prime of their life, apparently seeming reasonably fit and healthy. But one of them had been kept up at night. He, he couldn't sleep because of stomach aches. I, I really got a lot of the conversation. It was, quite, it was quite loud. But also because it was exactly what I was, I was looking at in the, in the gospel here. Um, but the talk was very anxious, and so one guy was having trouble sleeping because of a stomach ache. And so there was concern about what do we order? Is avocado okay? No, that's too fibrous, that's gonna be hard to digest. Is he having too much dairy? Should he go off meat for a time? If he presented himself to a hospital and exaggerated his symptoms, he could get free bloods done or blood work. I don't know what that is. Some of you some of you here are a bit more medical, you know what happens with that. But apparently it's a bit like a service for the car, but you just go in and get your bloods done. Anyway, you meant to do it. But underpinning all of this was the belief, I think There was the belief that if you just make the right choices at the right time, if you calibrate things exactly, you can preserve your body for maximum health. And I hope the way I'm retelling it doesn't sound like, I don't know, condemning or patronizing, because I think if this is the only body we get, really, it it deserves the best of our attention and effort, doesn't it? To preserve it. But at the end of the conversation, one of them kind of pulled back the curtain on the whole thing, And she said, I'm living so healthy right now, I'd be devastated if I got sick or if I found out there was something I inherited from my parents that meant that I just was going to be sick. And that's the crux of it, isn't it? You can make every possible right decision and in the end, just get sick. If two years of a pandemic has taught us anything, it's that we have very little control over things, don't we? Particularly when it comes to our health and life and death. We want so badly to preserve our life and the life that comes with youth and yet we have no power to do it. There is a deep longing in us for the power that only comes from Jesus. This is the power that he claims. The resurrection power of Christ says that all who believe in him shall not die but have eternal life will be renewed in the new creation with bodies that are forever new. That are healed. This is the hope of the Christian faith. And so if you're here and a follower of Jesus, it should be the case that the process of aging should increase your hope. That sounds counterintuitive, but according to the gospel, that's logical. That as the body wastes away, you're actually getting closer to your true life. You could think of it in this way. Imagine you had to work overnight and into the day. And you had a torch that had only enough battery life for The night hours. You knew exactly that you had that much battery life left. It would be the case that as the night went on and as your torchlight faded, you would know that you must be getting closer and closer to a time when you won't need it at all. When in fact the torchlight will be completely overwhelmed by daylight. It would be a reminder that something better is coming, that easier circumstances are coming. And in the same way, this is the Christian hope. It is our bodies age and show signs of aging. That it's not that our life is slipping away, but you're actually getting nearer and nearer and nearer to true life and everlasting life. That's why Paul, who lived so close to death, a follower of Jesus, wrote this. He said, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So, if you are a follower of Christ, the call is for your hope to increase over time. That's why Jesus finishes the Gospel of Matthew with these words in Matthew 28. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's not just that you were to have this hope, but that you were to share this hope with as many people as you can before He calls you home. And that's why we celebrate baptisms on Easter Sunday. Because again, as Jacob was explaining before, it's a reminder of the resurrection life we have in Jesus, the indestructible life that we have in Christ. And so Christians for 2,000 years have celebrated it in the same way. And we're doing it properly. We're going to a natural body of water. None of that tank stuff or anything like that, right? We're doing it like they did old school 2,000 years ago. But sharing in the tradition that Christians have throughout time, that it's a reminder and a rehearsal of the gospel. As you go under the water, it's your old life passing away and dying. And as you come up, it's new life in Christ, the resurrection life that will never be taken away. And if you're here and someone who wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian or even you you would find yourself quite skeptical, I encourage you to investigate this hope. This morning, obviously, we couldn't really dive into all of your questions, rational questions about Jesus and the claims of Christianity. But we do have a space for that called Alpha that we run regularly here at City Light, and we've got one coming up. And it's a great opportunity to, over a meal with a bunch of other people who have questions, dig into the gospel and find out whether or not this stuff is true. Because these claims, though extraordinary if, uh, if they're true, are absolutely life-changing, and we believe that they are. And so it's a context where you can ask any question, where nothing's off the table, and we're at a time where you can dive into these claims of the gospel for yourself. And so I'm going to finish now, actually not by speaking anymore, but I'm going to pass it over to a few people who've done Alpha here at church and for them to explain a little bit about what that's like. And then after that, Jacob's going to come up and lead us through the next part of our service together. So I'll hand over to them now.